kneel before Zod. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Whose Life Is It Anyway? Released December 2nd, 1981. It was written by Brian Clark and Reginald Rose, based on Brian Clark's play, with additional uncredited work from John Badham, Lawrence P. Bachman, and Robert L. Collins, directed by John Badham, and released by United Artists. Britney Spears was born today. Happy birthday, Britney Spears. The story of this film started as a televised play in 1972 starring Ian McShane as Ken. Yeah. From there, it went on to stage performances at the Mermaid Theater in 1978 starring Tom Conti and eventually made its way to Broadway with Gene Marsh in the Dr. Claire Scott role. The Broadway run earned Conti a Tony for Best Actor, and the show also took nominations for Best Play and Best Director for Michael Lindsay Hogg as well. While this film was in production, the play reopened with the same director as the Broadway show, but gender-swapped with Mary Tyler Moore as the patient, renamed Claire, and she took home a special Tony Award for that performance. In 2005... What, what does that mean, a special Tony Award? A special Tony Award. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> In 2005, the female-led version got a revival with Kim Cattrall in the lead, and a subsequent national tour starred husband and wife Lawrence Luckinbill and Lucy Arnaz, trading roles back and forth as the patient and doctor from night to night. Oh, did, was it like a mystery of who, which one you were going to get? <laughs> I guess, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how they decided. Keep it interesting. Independent producer Elliot Kastner claimed a verbal contract with playwright Brian Clark for the film's rights, but the dispute was settled by the London High Court, who ruled that the spoken agreement did not constitute a legal contract. Yeah, but now, just a thumbs-up text message does. Yeah. <laughs> That's fine. Did you see that? No, yeah. I didn't. Oh, some, like, I don't know, some farmer, I think, in Canada um, had sent a contract for, I don't know, whatever, soybean delivery or something like and that. Somebody, somebody responded up. with a thumbs-up, and he took him to court because he's like, you didn't deliver the stuff. And he's like, you... you this, I just said this thumbs up, like, I acknowledged, I see that you sent me the contract. And the guy's like, no, you you accepted the contract with your thumbs up. And the judge ruled that, yes, he accepted yeah. the contract. Wow. Eventual producer Lawrence P. Bachman acquired the rights and signed a deal with MGM. MGM president David Begelman expressed a preference for Richard Dreyfus in the role over Tony winner Tom Conti. Dreyfus and director John Batham were attached near simultaneously. Offers were put out to regular A-listers Redford, Nicholson, and Hoffman, but Dreyfus was the only one willing to sign on without a script in hand. Once he was cast, Richard Dreyfus suggested to director Batham that they rehearse the script as a stage performance and even performed a two-week engagement for an audience at the Williamstown Theater Festival with Blythe Danner as the Dr. Scott. Blythe Danner and Edward Herman were originally set to star in the film as Dr. Scott and attorney Carter Hill, but both were replaced due to scheduling conflicts by the time the production began. John Badham was intent on shooting the film in black and white and faced the usual opposition from the studio. They insisted he shoot in color with the option of converting to black and white, and both versions were screened for a test audience who vastly preferred the color version. 
I don't know what about this would scream needs to be black and white. Just artsy. Yeah, it's because it's already so flat with colors because you're in a hospital. That was on purpose, though, too. He said that he was pretty sure they were going to go with the color version anyway. So he went with muted grays and browns Mm. for a lot of the color so that he could pick things to pop like golden necklaces and things like that. We open the film during the construction of the latest Ken Harrison sculpture. It's a lot of beams and angular planes welded together. It looks very dangerous. Like I'm worried a giant might step on it by accident. <laughs> it's like a giant caltrop. Yeah. <laughs> There's a statue in uh, in Milwaukee that looks just like this. Yeah. Uh, trying to find the Is it an original name. Ken Harrison? Well... I'm just wondering if this is an actual statue from that same artist. Oh, maybe. And they're just passing it off, um, you know, as as this guy is. Yeah. The men charged with putting it together don't understand it, but a woman below them, Ken's wife will learn later, cheers them on. What the hell is this thing anyway? What do you mean, what is it? It's art. It's art. (laughs) Now we see the artist, Ken, played by Richard Dreyfus, who supervises from a cherry picker and rides it slowly to the ground to see his wife. Is it his wife or girlfriend? I, I think girlfriend. Girlfriend, okay. yeah. She tells him what the film's audience was no doubt thinking. You really did it. Yeah? Yeah. I'm really proud of you. That's really something. Yeah? You really made a yeah. big pile of sticks. I used you as a model. they head their separate ways in their cars but ken is headed home to start a dinner for them both we watch ken drive in relative silence for a moment and then cut outside his vehicle to see an 18 wheeler rolling with no functional brakes through town the driver honks his horn repeatedly but by the time ken encounters the truck it's too late to stop and he drives straight under the box trailer shearing the top off his car Later, when emergency crews are on site, they find Ken tucked into the wreckage, bleeding profusely from the head. He is rushed to the nearest hospital, and we get a montage of his treatment. Dr. Emerson sees the patient arrive and orders him into Operation ASAP. Emerson is being played by John Cassavetes. I want him in Operating Room 8. (laughs) I specifically requested 8. In his x-rays, we learn he has fractured ribs, which have punctured lungs, and he has a severe spinal injury that renders the best-case scenario of quadriplegia. I think the best we can hope for, though, is a quad. I want him alive to him. I'll do the best job I can. We see Ken's girlfriend, Pat, in a waiting room. Sometime later, she arrives to the hospital again, and it seems like he's well into his routine with the caregivers now. They have him strapped into one of those orbital gurneys that rotates like a rotisserie, and they flip him to face up for his visitor. Another little time jump, and Ken is being introduced to his newest nurse, Miss Joey Sadler, played by Khaki Hunter. Ken's regular nurse, Rodriguez, and Miss Sadler check him for bed sores together. Joey Sadler is left alone with Ken, and he learns that she's graduating in two weeks. Uh, so the the artist that I was thinking of that this looks like, uh, his name is Mark D. Surveo. Oh, okay. Is, is that how you'd say that? S-U-V-E-R-O? S-U-V-E-R-O. Severo? Severo. Mark D. Severo. Um, but he has all of these sculptures. And oh, I mean, yeah. They're all over the place. There's one in Milwaukee. There's one in Chicago. But they're mostly made of metal beams. And sometimes they have steel pieces, like, attached, like, flat steel pieces it attached It does look to like them. his work, But then. he usually does add that red-orange color to mm-hmm. them. Yeah. He was definitely active. Uh, at that time? At, at least prior to 81. So, okay. So, uh, 
I mean, it's possible that it's one of his. But, I wouldn't be surprised if they just yeah. repurposed the installation of one of his things for this. Yeah. Because it doesn't look like anything else we'll see from this sculptor. That for the actually rest of the kind film. of bothers me because mm-hmm. usually artists have a style, a style and a theme. And I and I realize that throughout the film he uses his girlfriend as a muse yeah. um, for his sculptures, and a lot of them are really um, they're figurative. A lot of them are clay gesture sculptures, um, but. For some reason, this one stands out as being very different. And granted, we haven't seen this whole body of work, right. but this giant, you know, metal monstrosity of a of a sculpture that's supposed to represent her, you know, dance movements just doesn't fit with the rest of his work in his in his uh, studio. Yeah, it, more points in the column of it's probably someone else's work that they just filmed during the installation. Yeah. But but then have the other work in his studio reflect that. Yeah, maybe. Right. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense if none of this stuff looks like her at all, though, mm. if they're but, saying she's his muse. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I think it makes sense in so much as the practicality of filming something. Sure. That you're like, okay, what can we fill a studio with that's actually representative of this mm. person and looks like them? Oh, I can make a bunch of quick, like, clay mock-ups of this woman dancing. Um but then you're not going to have anything that's like that on a really large scale that he would be visiting. Right. Uh, so you're like, oh, I don't know. There's this one downtown that's a, you know. Big Maybe they're just counting metal. on the audience forgetting what his first piece looked they like. They also because count of a on the artists, you know, people being like, oh, artists, you know, they just do all sorts of things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he makes it clear that that's not true either later. But Ken's girlfriend stops by and jokingly criticizes Rodriguez for letting a pretty woman touch her boyfriend. You know, Miss Rodriguez, you promised me you wouldn't send any more cute ones in here. Oh, you should have seen the one who was in here last night. Yeah. After lights out, she snuck me out. We went skateboarding. <laughs> Only trouble was, I was the skateboard. When they sit Ken back up in bed, he gives Joey very specific instructions for how to position his hand and fingers. Pat watches over her shoulder, observing his powerlessness. She leans in to give him a quick goodbye kiss, and she's on her way again. When Rodriguez and Joey step away from Ken's room, we learn from their conversation that he's been here six months now and he will never regain use of his arms or legs. A man named John is ordered to Ken's bedside to cut his hair and trim his beard. Ken asks how his band is doing and John says they just brought on a xylophonist. John tries to sing a bit of one of their songs, but his acapella performance is interrupted with the arrival of Dr. Claire Scott. She listens to his heartbeat and determines that it's doing better and he might be ready for more involved physical therapy, but he doesn't see the point. Meaning I can resume my basketball career? No, I think you're a little too short for basketball. Huge. Thank you. Ken makes some critical remarks of Dr. Emerson, suggesting that he has something of a messiah complex, and Dr. Scott assures him that Emerson is a very talented doctor and Ken is lucky to have him. Dr. Scott speaks with Rodriguez after the checkup and advises an increase of his Valium to 5 milligrams as a result of what she interpreted as increased agitation. We see Dr. Emerson doing his rounds with some third-year students and they come upon a patient who has just passed away. He looks through the man's charts and asks a series of questions when he notices one of his students yawning. The student tries to explain that he is used to dead bodies at this point and Emerson reminds him that people under 70 should not be dying on their watch. It's something you should never get used to. This makes me sick. It ought to make you sick, too. Look there. That's the enemy. The enemy has won. Mr. Dreyer was 56 years old. And I want you, Mr. Everett, and I want all of you to feel sick when you see a body that hasn't reached its allotted three score years and ten. 
That's if you want to be doctors, not just money grubbers. Uh, the attending physician uh, at the scene there. Right. I uh, was like, oh, hey, I know that guy. Yeah. It's Jeffrey Combs. Yeah. And uh, potentially a reanimator prequel here. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I, um, another early, early role that I know him from um, is uh, the man with two brains. It's all, always medical professionals. Yeah. It's yeah. like he's always playing some kind of one scene doctor. That's funny. Later, we see Joey Sadler bringing a cup of what she calls coffee, but Ken doesn't believe her. Good for you. You have to drink it, Mr. Hatch. No, it looks like somebody already Just drank it. Just take a sip. It's I good don't for want you. any of it. Please it's come not that- on. Oh shit! I'm sorry. Oh. Joey tries to clean up Ken as best she can, but she nudges him a bit too hard, and he loses his balance to roll over the side of his bed. She barely catches onto his legs before his head would have hit the ground, and she screams for help as more staff slowly lower him to the floor. Even as he's laid out on the ground, he tries to shout to the staff and explain that this was his fault. It wasn't her fault. It wasn't her fault. It was just an accident. He claims Joey didn't do anything wrong, even though she clearly did, and the rails should have been up if she was going to be jostling him like this. Joey is obviously instantly sobbing. Emerson is drawn over by the commotion and gives Ken a quick checkup in the bed. Emerson looks over his charts and is optimistic about his progress. Ken asks when he could be discharged, and Emerson intentionally mishears him to announce an upcoming transfer to a rehab facility, but Ken wants to know when he can go home. The answer, he seems to already know, is that he can never go home because he will require dialysis for the remainder of his life. He asks Emerson straight out what his personal opinion is on Ken's future. Do you think I'll ever walk again? No. (sighs) Regain the use of my arms? No. Or my... Or my hands. No. Thank you. What are you thanking me for? Your honesty. We were wondering when you'd ask. Why didn't you tell me before? We didn't think you'd hear us. Has he been in denial this whole time? It doesn't seem like it. (laughs) No, it... It's just like because so much time has progressed. Yeah, it's like, like why wouldn't they have had this conversation earlier? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't know. He'll say you wouldn't have listened. And if he doesn't argue, then he agues. Emerson suggests upping the Valium prescription to 10 milligrams, and Dr. Scott concurs. We haven't gotten to pump up the volume yet. Right. <laughs> pump up the Valium. Pump up the Valium. <laughs> Dr. Scott brings the Valium dose to Ken herself and tells him that she will change his nurse out to avoid any future incidents. Obviously, Ken objects to the substitution and insists Joey did nothing wrong. But honestly, if Khaki Hunter were my nurse, I would never let them take her away either. (laughs) Even if she just pushed me out of the bed every morning, I'd be like, that's fine. I'm still alive. Uh, Dr. Emerson, when he leaves, he says he has to go to a board meeting and meet with some tight-ass TikToks. Yeah. (laughs) What's a tight-ass TikTok? He's just going to sit in a closet and flip around on his phone for a while. (laughs) Wow, how does this thing know? I just want to see tight asses. Because <laughs> <laughs> you keep talking about it. It's got a microphone on it, buddy. She tries to give him his medicine, and he refuses it because he thinks they're just trying to shut him up and not treat him. He finally convinces her not to give it to him, and she steps away from his bed. Over lunch, Dr. Emerson basically calls Ken a hypocrite for refusing his medication, but trusting them when it came to life-saving medicine during his operations. He phones the nurse's station and asks for the 10 milligram dose of Valium to be prepared, and he takes it to Ken himself. Ken refuses the dose again, but Emerson injects him anyway. 
Ken is shocked to see his demand ignored. God damn you. I specifically refuse you permission to do that. I feel like he could be sued for that. I'm yes. sure he could. Absolutely. He leans Ken back in bed and walks away, ignoring his complaints. Well, see, Dr. Emerson plays a very interesting antagonist because he is so obsessed with keeping people alive yeah. despite anything else. I do feel like this is the worst thing that he does and really the only thing that he does that's completely over the line. Mm. I feel yeah. like the rest of what he does is stuff that he should be doing in his position. Sure. And then this is the one thing that he does where it's like, uh, that was that was wrong. We cut to Ken sleeping and we get a glimpse of his dreams. In black and white, he watches his girlfriend Pat doing a dance routine and he sketches her in various poses. Yeah, John Badham got that stuff in yeah, there. He's he like, snuck it in. He started with this and they were like, wait, are you doing it black and white anyway? He's like, shut up, go away. <laughs> He is occasionally woken by lightning, and the scene transitions to his wife in a sheer layer of fabric, dancing in darkness. He sculpts while she dances. Eventually, she's dancing fully nude. Of course, this is where my coworkers come in and ask me to handle a job when I'm watching this movie at work. <laughs> it's like, I'm not just watching a naked lady dance against the black background. It's, it's black I mean, and white. It's this is for I, my podcast. I am watching a naked lady dance, but I would swear it's for, wait, recreation? At the end of her dance, she transforms into a clay figurine, and we dissolve back to Ken, waking to lightning. When the nurses attend to him later, he asks for them to please call an attorney that once came to visit and left his info. I, I assume that this was to sue the doctor for injecting him, but that's not the case. Pat shows up, and Ken asks for privacy from his nurses. He tells her how honored he is that she still comes here every day after six months of treatment, and he asks if she's been faithful this whole time. She confirms she has. He informs her that he is not the same man that he was the day of the accident, and he begs her to go and never come back. He tells her that in her position, he wouldn't be here every day to see her. He wouldn't stay faithful to her. He says that seeing her only reminds him of the life he'll never have again, and it's not enough to just see her. Eventually, she accepts what he's saying and leaves, and he cries in her wake. John comes in to wipe his tears. You know, I always say that if a man can't use his hands, he's got to be a real dumb son of a bitch to cry, you know? On his way back down the hall, John spots Joey sterilizing some utensils, and he surprises her, so she drops the tray on the floor and has to start over. He asks Joey on a date, and they're still flirting when Rodriguez interrupts to order them back to work. Sometime later, Ken is wheeled to a therapy session with Dr. Kate Boyle. She tries to cheer up Ken by explaining what he'll be able to do with the help of technology, but Ken doesn't want to do any of the dumb things she lists. He just wants to sculpt, and he can't sculpt. She tells him that, as an artist, he should be happy to engage in any type of art, and he is frustrated with her ignorance. You could write a book about sculpture, a novel, poetry, Wait a minute, anything. wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you think that you change your art like you switch your major in college? I'm a sculptor. My whole being, my entire imagination speaks to me through... <laughs> uh, spoke to me through my fingers I was a sculptor and that was what my life was all about she stands to leave and he criticizes all these people for ignoring his points when they disagree instead of trying to debate it or worse accept his perspective he tells her he is sadder now than he was when they rolled him in here I mean, he's not wrong in that it's his choice, but he is wrong. <laughs> he's wrong in that 
he wouldn't be able to find some other passion. I mean, he hasn't even tried. Yeah. Like, like. Give no, it, sculpting give or shot. nothing. Yeah. Like, you're really ready to die before you've even attempted to do anything else. Like, it seems like such a waste. Yeah. It's like if you were in some industrial accident and you only lost your hands, would you be demanding that someone kill you still? Or would you find a different way to sculpt? You yeah. know, and like the reality is that. Nowadays, he could be doing it with a with a VR headset. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, technology could help him do all sorts of things. Yeah. And, and I realize that, yeah, maybe you're not a writer, but you still have something to contribute to the world. But. He is right. It's his choice. If he wants yeah. to be lame and throw it all away, it's his choice. I mean, essentially, the fact that he's paralyzed is is sort of not as important as the point that he should have a right to suicide, basically, is what he's saying. Yeah. And so because he's not able to move his arms and legs, he is being denied that right by physics, but he should be allowed that through medical well, assistance. I, I guess I maybe the laws were different in 81, but I feel like people have the right to refuse medical treatment they they do even now and or in the in in 81 then why was this at all a debate that you could even have because you might have a stubborn doctor that just gives you medicine against your will there there's that and also again because emerson is the antagonist who's who's uh lawful evil with that, with that be? i guess yeah um he he's willing to have him declared to be incompetent and unable to to be rash con- considered to be rational to refuse rational enough to refuse treatment. Right. Yeah. We have plenty of irrational people that refuse necessary medical treatment, like yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses and the likes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but also, when people are legitimately out of their minds, Ken is suddenly choking, and he asks the woman to leave him alone to choke. John rolls him back to his room, and Rodriguez applies an oxygen mask, after which he calms a bit. Uh, when he's in the choking fit, he's trying to resist the oxygen mask. Right, he's he's, he's like tilting his head away like from he, it. He's just like, like, this is it, this is my moment. Yeah. Let me go. Like, yeah. Dr. Scott rushes in to check on him. She tries to talk him into his medication again, and he catches her off guard with a non sequitur. You have beautiful breasts. What did you say? I said you have beautiful Rests. She is momentarily speechless. He asks if he's embarrassed her, and eventually she admits he did. He thinks that she would be more offended and uncomfortable with the remark if he had been a whole man, and she admits that she might have been. He's embarrassed by his own internal perversions and feels less and less in control of his own sexual remarks since that life is gone to him. He reminds her that he would like to die, and she assures him, based on previous cases, that that feeling will pass. I, I'm so annoyed at this comment or moment because he feels really offended by the fact that she's not uncomfortable with this and because he's not somebody he's the the reality is she's not uncomfortable because he's no longer a threat and they and he seems to be upset that he's no longer a threat to her and that the fact that women are afraid in rooms with men at basically all times is okay, and he's frustrated that he can't do that anymore. Yeah. Well, I think that's part of it, and part of it is that in addition to not being able to use that part of his body or have that part of his life anymore, he also feels even more impotent because everyone around him knows that he can't do it. Yeah. It's not like a situation where a person was just shooting blanks and other people didn't know. It's like literally everybody knows I can't do anything, and they, they just think of me as a voice in the room. That's literally all I Yeah, have. I guess I just look at it like like he's disappointed 
But that, I think he misses gone. flirting with people in a legitimate way. And he realized that people are when he flirts with girls now, they brush it off like he's like he's just a guy who is who is like way out of their league, like below their league. Rather than being scared of him or, or uncomfortable. back yeah. legitimately. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do think that that part of his point is that that you would have told me to shut up if my penis worked. But it doesn't, so you don't care what I say because I don't matter. I'm not a thing anymore. Or I'm just a thing. Sometime later, we see Ken meeting with an attorney, Carter Hill, played by Bob Balaban, who puts his foot in his mouth right away. I had a terrible cold last week. I just, you know, flat on my back for, you know, I couldn't move. It seems Hill thought that this meeting was regarding the insurance claim, but Ken has other plans. He explains his intention to win freedom from this hospital in court. Well, they, they wouldn't uh, 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 keep you here any, any, any longer than necessary. You wouldn't think so, would you? Hill is obviously taken aback by the implications of this case and what he's being asked to do, in essence, aiding Ken in his suicide. I think it is a little preposterous to think that an insurance agency would ever deny somebody the right to just die rather yeah. than spend yeah. their money for the rest of his life. Yeah, that does make sense. But he's asking him to do it independently of the insurance company. Well, but same, but the same for the hospital. It's just like it, this this movie is so preposterous that the hospital's like, like you can have a spare bed in a week. You don't want you don't you want to just die and then I don't have to pay for this care forever? Mm-hmm. Done. Well, the the hospital's getting the money from the insurance company, so they don't care. They they look at him as a cash cow. They're like this Maybe. is a customer for life if we keep him alive. A year, two years, indefinitely. <laughs> In an elevator across the hospital, John is coming on strong, asking Joey out again, and she tells him to ask her after graduation. Mr. Hill explains Ken's case to Dr. Emerson, who is less than thrilled with having to deal with this in court now. You want me to kill my patient? No, I, I'm simply presenting Mr. Harrison's uh, uh, Emerson, uh, wishes in the matter. Emerson accuses Hill of facilitating a murder and claims that Ken is not mentally fit to recommend his own discharge. Hill requests the opportunity to have an independent, qualified psychiatrist make that assessment. Ken is not happy to learn that if Emerson can prove he is not of sound mind, that he can be committed indefinitely against his will. Emerson meets with his own psychologist, Dr. Sandy Jacobs, played by George Weiner. Unfortunately for Emerson, the man is not the pushover he was hoping for. Even if I agree, you're still going to need another consult. That's no problem, is it? Depends if he's clinically depressed, right? I mean, look, if I walk in... He says, hey, I'm a teapot. <laughs> You're in. Depressed? What the hell do you mean depressed? He's suicidal. <laughs> Doctor, I can name you several prominent psychiatrists who wouldn't accept suicide as evidence of insanity. And I can name you several prominent psychiatrists who in themselves are evidence of insanity. <laughs> Dr. Scott is disgusted to learn Emerson's plan. She admits she can't promise she wouldn't want the same thing in Ken's situation. When he realizes how upset she is, he makes a very ugly insinuation on her way out. Claire? I'm sure it's not necessary for me to say this, but if Harrison should suddenly sour and die on us, I'll order an autopsy and I'll act on whatever's found. You fucker. I guess the implication here is that if If you kill him. Yeah, like if you overdose him on morphine or something. John rolls Ken to dialysis where he's striking up a conversation with a young girl who's tapering off her treatments as she recovers. John helps the girl escape Ken's banter. Dr. Joseph stops by to examine Ken. He suggests that Ken's intelligence is an argument for his own protection, and Ken points out what a catch-22 that is. No, no, then wait a minute. That's not fair. That's, that's, that's catch-22. If, if you're clever enough and sane enough to, to put forth an invincible argument for suicide, 
That demonstrates that you ought not to die. We cut right from that to Ken talking to another psychiatrist, and he's already exhausted with the exercise. The next day, Dr. Scott decides to stop by Ken's loft to get a better feel for him as a person. She just walks right in. She's got well, she has key. a key. I think but, she has his key to the place. As I said, like, where, where, where was his key this whole time? Yeah, I well, think I it don't, was just... She doesn't have his key. She has... Pat's key? Yeah, because she hands it back to her when she shows up. Oh, okay. She's like, here's your key back. Okay. But why does she have the key to begin with? I don't with? know. It's a weird extra plot detail that seemed weirdly unnecessary. Yeah. Nobody's home when she gets there, and she explores the space on her own. She seems moved by his work. She sees a marble hand sculpture on a desk and finds it particularly intriguing. Pat happens to stop by to drop off some things, and Dr. Scott asks her assistance in getting through to Ken. Pat has taken her last chat with Ken fully to heart, and dismisses the Ken she knew as a dead man. Pat says if Dr. Scott truly respected Ken, she would let him do what he wants, give him his autonomy. We cut to Joey feeding Ken fried chicken for dinner, and he slips into an annoying toddler character demanding a bunny rabbit bib. <gasps> oh, chicken. how creative. Chicken mm. instead of turkey, I see. Oh, oh, why are there no bunny rabbits on my bib? I want bunny rabbits on my bib. She unthinkingly licks bits of chicken off her fingers, and when Ken points it out, she switches to feeding him peas, which he makes a game of spitting at various targets. This is horrifying. Yeah. Your nurse just licked her fingers. Mm -hmm. And then she's touching the chicken again and putting it in your mouth. It's like double dipping. Gross. Only Khaki Hunter could get away with this. We cut to Attorney Hill and Dr. Scott coming out of a restaurant together. He presents her with the details of Ken's case and asks purely as a human, if she would interrupt Ken's suicide if he were able to inflict it upon himself. I, um, I don't think I would. Hey, don't, we're not adversaries. She heads back to the hospital to check on Ken and admits to him under questioning that she was just at dinner with Mr. Hill. Well, 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 the horny little bugger. <laughs> Didn't take him long. It was just a dinner. I know I asked him to represent me, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> That's my favorite line in the movie. She admits to Ken that she went to the studio, but conveniently leaves out her encounter with Pat. She brought some of his art here to make him feel more at home, and the first piece she unveils is her favorite. It's the hand she was transfixed by. He agrees it's his favorite piece too, before admitting that it's actually a realization of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel hands, and she has picked an adaptation as her favorite. She tells Ken that he doesn't seem suicidal, and he points out that, less than being dead, he would like to at least be in charge of what's left of his life which, as far as he's concerned, has ended. I'm sure it's been happening throughout the film, but this was the first time I really noticed that uh, Dreyfus was shuffling his feet. Oh, is he really? Yeah, like you can really see the bed moving around a lot by his feet. I did not notice that. And I was like, oh, and I thought there was going to be a twist where... He's faking it. He recovers? Well, well where he, where he un- unknowingly is recovering... And, Resurrection style. Well, because he's it, it's just out of her her view in yeah. the scene, and I was like, oh, is he like actually recovering? And the the twist is going to be he kills himself when he was going to recover. Yeah. Um, he kicks poison into his own mouth. <laughs> <laughs> um, what? <laughs> he becomes a pro skater. No. Um, but uh, I, like, like I said, it's it's got to be hard because you're an actor, and it's really hard to just suddenly stop moving every I would have expected body. they would strap him down and have people watching every part of his body for mm-hmm. every scene. I feel like that's a script supervisor thing. It's like, make sure this paralyzed guy isn't dancing in the shot. 
Sometime later, John and Joey together drive up to the back of the hospital, and John rushes in to roll a wheelchair to Ken's bedside. Ken wonders where the hell he's going, and John says they're headed to dialysis. When they exit the elevator in the basement, Joey asks what took so long, and they wheel him out to a random workroom off the basement hallway, and Ken is entreated to a performance of Jump in the Line by John's reggae band. Ken is very clearly enjoying himself, and Joey takes his hands to dance with him. In between songs, he's introduced to the full band, and he's handed a massive joint to partake in. This was making me really nervous, because he can't take the joint out of his mouth. Yeah. And, like, there's long shots of other people where I'm just like, did that joint fall out of his mouth? Is he on fire right now? <laughs> but he's fine. He's taking it like a pro. Joey notices a security guard is coming and shouts for the band to stop, but they take a weirdly long time to react to her warning. The band scatters with most of their instruments, leaving Ken by himself with this huge joint in his mouth when the guard shows up. What the hell is going on here? Who are you? What are you doing here? Isn't this dialysis? Later, when he's tucked back into his bed, Mr. Hill arrives to confirm he will represent Ken in the court case. He has an interesting angle on their strategy. I want to go for a rid of habeas corpus. Habeas corpus? I thought that had to do with criminals. Usually it does. It is against the law to deprive anyone of his liberty without due process. Mm -hmm. And if that happens, he can apply for a writ of habeas corpus, which means give us the, um, body. <laughs> Do you guys recall the last time we saw an attorney enter a writ of habeas corpus? Nothing. He also entered corpus delecti, ad oh. nauseum. What was that? Uh, where the buffalo roam? No. Just thinking of Much more lawyers. <laughs> Yeah, it was no, a cartoon I, lawyer. Oh, was it the Bugs Bunny movie? Yeah, yeah. Rocky's attorney in the Looney, yeah, Looney, yeah. Looney Bugs Bunny movie. That's funny. Ken thanks Hill for agreeing to take his case in spite of its implications. Look, I'll be honest with you. This is a case I could bear to lose. Well, if you do, it's a life sentence for me. As Ken is wheeled out of his court appearance, I wish he'd been like, oh, so you're alive. You just admitted you're alive. <laughs> As Ken is wheeled out for his court appearance, he asks the nurse's station if he has their support. Rodriguez does not approve, but Joey is rooting for him. The presiding judge is Judge Weiler, played by Kenneth McMillan. Dr. Emerson testifies a summary of the treatment that Ken has received at the hospital. He confirms for the court that Ken will not recover beyond what he has already done physically. Emerson makes the claim that Ken is clinically depressed, but in cross-examination admits that he is not in any way qualified to render such a diagnosis. Some of the psychs who have spoken with Ken are called to the stand and asked if they believe his depression is a result of illness or rational depression based on his condition, and every doctor has said the same thing. Ken is not crazy. He's intelligent, he's rational, and he's sane. Though the first psychiatrist does admit ultimately that he disagrees with Ken's decision, but he thinks he came to it by way of logical thinking. Yeah, and that was the the psychologist that was supposed to be on their Right, on their yeah, team. it was supposed to be Balaban's psychologist, uh, Hill's psychologist. This whole court section, like, they never really give any good arguments against him, which is no, they don't. Which yeah, is it's... frustrating. Like, I was, I was hoping for at least, you know, like a strong showing on both sides, or like some last minute comment where you're like, oh, that could push the judge the other way, yeah, but, but never there's, happens. There's nothing about this that makes me think that anybody would rule against him. Yeah, the judge has questions for Ken, and he's excited to answer them. I'll try to keep them uninflammatory. You're too kind. Not at all. No, I meant that. I think I'd much prefer a hanging judge. The judge points out that Ken must be pretty depressed if he wants to die, and he corrects that he doesn't want to die. He just wants to regain control of his destiny. 
He wants that tiny sliver of autonomy which is guaranteed to him by the laws of this country. Ken asks if he can even be found legally alive if he requires regular access to machines to live more than a week. Ken points out that if he lives out a full life in the hospital, it will have done no good beyond keeping him alive, and it will officially be forfeiting the last decision he could ever have made himself. He explains piece by piece how everything he considered to be his life has wasted away since the accident. His art died with his hands. Women, who used to recharge and intoxicate him, are now a daily torment. Your Honor, if you saw a mutilated animal on the side of the road, you'd shoot it. Now, I am only asking for the same mercy that you would show that animal. He reiterates that he's not asking to be killed. He just wants to be left alone to die naturally, because in five years, he will be insane if he's still alive. The judge calls a recess to come to a decision. Yeah, that, that's always tricky, though. It, it's To me, like, it's putting a lot of pressure on the last person to see you. Yeah. Like, it's like, if you if you are demanded to be taken to your, your back to your studio, right. the last person who closes the door behind you... Killed you. Killed you. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the person at the jail who's in charge of flipping the switch. Yeah. It's like, that person's going to know that they did it. But yeah, it's like, and what if we close that door and like your nose starts itching? Mm -hmm. You're just like, well, fuck. Now my nose is itching. Yeah. <laughs> Scratch your noses, everybody. My nose is not itching. Isn't it though? The judge steps outside through the snow and picks up a phone in the next building to call a clerk at his office. I wonder if you'd look up something for me. A Florida decision. About two years back, I think it was Sokolis. You look up the holding and read it to me, please. I'll hold on. This is also like the worst office in the world. It, it has like this weird side door to a concrete. I feel like it's alleyway. just a library at the hospital yeah. that they're they're using as a courtroom. Yeah, it's definitely at the hospital. Yeah, uh, because but because then it leads out to like some other wing where a bunch of people are in like a greenhouse. Yeah, it's very weird. <laughs> I was like, what is this place? This is where they keep the vegetables. <laughs> in the greenhouse. We get a montage of all the people throughout the hospital wondering the outcome of the case. The judge returns to the makeshift courtroom. At the start of the judge's statement, he seems to be arguing that Ken may be intelligent enough to mask a clinical depression, and they should be careful not to ignore that possibility. However, I am satisfied that Mr. Harrison is a brave and thoughtful man who is in complete possession of his mental faculties and I therefore order that he be set free. Emerson is obviously disappointed with the ruling. You got your hanging, Judge. I think not. Thank you. Ken thanks Hill, who can barely respond. When he renders this final argument here, he's like, well, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, but he doesn't actually give any arguments against it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he's just like, you know, here's all this precedent that is totally in your favor. Right. But also, here's some more that's in your favor. Right. And I'm just I like, mean, there, there is the minor part where he says, like, maybe you are clinically depressed and we just can't tell. But that's just a chance we're going to have to take because yeah. you seem very intelligent. I just, I just wish there was, like... A sliver of an argument in the other direction. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, they, like they, do, they, they they make a whole meal of him going and doing, like, finding out this case that, mm -hmm. you know, could be in his favor. And I'm like, 
it didn't swing anything. Yeah, I, I kept waiting for all the video surveillance they were keeping on him to play off. Like, have, he has all these videos. That he looks of him. like he's crazy because he's crying or freaking <laughs> out as soon as they leave the room. Yeah, exactly. Like, because there was that one scene where someone is watching him as right. he's like, like slamming his head back and forth. And, and it seems mostly like the camera operators in that situation are just sympathizing with him. They're mm. like, "Fuck, that sucks. I don't know what I would do." John rolls Ken back to his bed, and Emerson catches up with them in the hall to make a peace offering. Ken can stay here in the hospital for the duration of his life, despite his decision to end treatment, because they can at least make his last days comfortable here. Ken asks why he's being so kind. Why are you doing this? Because you might change your mind. They put Ken back in his bed, and John pulls the sheet over his face before both burst into laughter. Dr. Scott comes in to see him and tries to kiss him, but he dodges it. She leaves and slides his curtain closed, and the camera pulls away from his bed and behind the hand sculpture that Dr. Scott placed in his room. The hand is positioned in such a way as to imply that Ken is laying in it, as though he's been left in God's hands by the court decision. Though, this particular hand is actually Adam's hand, so <laughs> yeah. the metaphor is slightly muddled. <laughs> and that's the end of the film. Whose life is it anyway? Oh, I forgot to mention at the top that the yeah. title is obviously parodied by a famous improv show. Right. Double Dare. Well, that's right. <laughs> Everybody's favorite. Uh, I hate the title, by the way. Yeah. I, I, uh, it, it, there's some things about this movie that imply that this is supposed to be kind of more comedic, and there's and Richard Dreyfuss is funny because he's he's witty and he's and he's fast talking and he well, makes you smile. And I think that's exactly it. I think they're trying to evoke that sort of uh, Marx Brothers, you know, like whose life was on anyway, and like because Dreyfus does talk like that. All right. Mm-hmm. What what is our alternate title? Go. Uh, I wasn't prepared. <laughs> Go. To be or not to be. Oh, that's a good one. Um, want to hear mine? Yeah. Take my life, please. Oh, uh, that that's a better a good one. one. That's, that's good, good right? Because yeah. it still fits the Groucho-y thing. Yeah. Even though that's a Catskills joke. That's a much better. That's a much better one. But anyway, yeah. But I I agree with you, Richard. Like tonally, it doesn't seem to fit. Like the movie isn't humorous enough to fit those mm-hmm. lines and uh all throughout the movie even in the more serious moments the music is so jaunty yeah and over weird. the top like it, it's kind of it's all very classical-esque but it's super like engaging and and happy like you you you, you picture people dancing yeah and, uh, and especially he, the uplifting moment at the end where you're like i it's a happy ending because he got what he wanted yeah but it's like I don't know if you're trying to imply that he is going to change his mind like mm-hmm. Emerson predicted because the movie does end in a sort of, you know, ambiguous moment where it's like maybe he will change his mind and just decide that it's better to have the treatment, but he wanted to be making that decision himself, yeah. mm-hmm. which obviously he could do. You know, he could go a week without dialysis and be like, holy shit, get me in that dialysis room. This is terrible. And I changed my mind. Yeah. I don't know. I don't like I'm trying to imagine this as a play too, and it feels kind of boring. It's one sided. There's there's not enough of an argument to make it like a gray area. Yeah. It seems like it's just a pretty straightforward one person is right and another person is not letting him be right. Yeah. I mean I guess we have to have also have the mindset of people of the time. Sure. Where, you know, this this was probably becoming more and more of a subject that was talked about yeah i mean we we even brought it up though in our review of coma which was 78 mm, yeah where the doctor said you know we're arguing things like right to die these are these are decisions that are having to be made by the medical community because Mm. 
courts and Congress and people are too scared to make these laws themselves. I think uh, Dreyfus gave good performances. Yeah. Uh, performances, like a singular performance, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, a lot of the supporting cast was kind of, I don't know, just kind of not as interesting. Uh, I, I was really like, uh, like the orderly John, like with the, like, I guess Jamaican or yeah. Caribbean kind of accent. Like, uh, I don't know. It was, it was an interesting choice. And I'm, I'm curious if that was in the original play. Yeah, or if I don't that know. was something added for this. Um, but uh, I know that the Pat character is never seen in the stage version. Mm. She's only oh, referred to. She doesn't actually come. How do they the do the car crash? Just sounds off screen. They literally <laughs> crash a car. Just shattered <laughs> his neck on stage. <laughs> I, I imagine it just opens with him in the hospital. That's oh. why Ian McShane is okay. in a mech suit whenever you see him. <laughs> I forgot to read a paragraph from the making of at the beginning, so I'm going to read it now. Richard Dreyfus has claimed that due to chronic illness and heavy drug use at the time, he does not recall any part of this film's production. <laughs> okay. So he literally doesn't remember making it. But it was well received. It's a perfectly competently made movie. Yeah. Like, there's nothing really wrong with this movie. It's just not, I just don't find it very compelling. So what are we doing thumbs? I mean, I'll give it a thumbs up because it's, it's like I said, it's a fine movie. Yeah. It's just not, it's just, it's just okay. I think it gets a thumbs up for me too. It's a thumbs up. I, 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 I was never really unengaged. I mean, I probably looked away a little bit and did some like quick phone browsing during, yeah. some, Could you? Some, <laughs> during some of it. But, uh, but overall I was like, I was like, all right, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm drawn in. I'm, I'm curious about the story, but I, I didn't. I didn't feel triumphant, like by this court decision. Like there, I wasn't like on pins and needles with like, what are they gonna decide? Yeah. Um, so at the end, you're like, all right. Yep. Cool. It's like, yeah, okay. This is a character I'm disengaging with the second this movie's over. I mean, I think it's actually it would have been even more interesting to deny him that right and to force him, you know, and to see his his mental decline as he realizes his fate and yeah. how horrible that is. Just like, do a sequel now. That's actually making a good statement. Like, mm-hmm. holy yeah. shit, I can't believe they did that. What are we thinking letterboxed? I have it quite solidly in the middle of the pack because it's... Just that kind of movie. So out of 164. I have it at. I have it at 69. Nice. <laughs> which is under and above. Oh, sorry. Which is under uh, Gallipoli and above Enter the Ninja. Perfect. <laughs> it's right where, right where it belongs. Um, I have it at 43. Uh, I don't know why I put that inflection on it <laughs> 40 a different 40 number that <laughs> yeah. is not 69 <laughs> i have it at 43 that's worse now <laughs> uh which puts it below halloween 2 but above chariots of fire all right i have it at 59 which is just below they all laughed and just above wolfen our director here was john badham we saw his work last on saturday night fever Later, he directs Blue Thunder, War Games, Short Circuit, 
Writer Brian Clark, he wrote the play and the screenplay. After this, it's mostly television screenwriting credits. The other writer was Reginald Rose, who wrote the screenplay. Uh, before this, he wrote 12 Angry Men, The Wild Geese, and most recently, The Sea Wolves, and later he writes Wild Geese 2. Uh, third uncredited writer is Lawrence P. Bachman, who is called a participating writer by IMDb. He previously wrote stories for a couple Dr. Kildare films, a trilogy of Dr. Gillespie films in the 40s, and Follow the Boys before this, and another uncredited writing credit for Robert L. Collins, who has mostly TV writing credits, but just before this he wrote Savage Harvest, which is a very similar film. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Lions well, Attack. Because uh, you, you said this was originally a TV play production. Right, yes. So I imagine that these are probably holdovers from the original Maybe, play. Maybe, yeah. The music here came from Arthur B. Rubenstein. He's the composer on other Batam works like Blue Thunder and War Games. He also scored Sledgehammer. Uh, the cinematographer here was Mario Tosi, who previously DP'd Frogs, Carrie, The Stuntman, Resurrection, and Coast to Coast. The editor was Frank Morris, who previously cut Nick of Time and a 2004 Evil Knievel TV movie starring George Eads as Evil Knievel. Richard Dreyfus played Ken Harrison. He's in American Graffiti, Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and The Goodbye Girl. We saw him last as Paul Dietrich in the competition. Later, he's in Stand By Me, Moon Over Parador, Always, What About Bob, Mr. Holland's Opus, Krippendorf's Tribe, and he was Dick Cheney in Oliver Stone's W. John Cassavetes was Dr. Michael Emerson. He's a writer-director of Husbands, Faces, Minnie and Moskowitz, all of which he also appears in, A Woman Under the Influence, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Gloria. He's also in The Killers, The Dirty Dozen, Two Minute Warning, and The Fury as just an actor. Christine Lottie played Dr. Claire Scott. Before this, she'd appeared only in And Justice for All. She was Dr. Catherine Austin in 97 episodes of Chicago Hope, and she's Grace McAllister in 22 Jack and Bobbies. Never seen that show. Bob Balaban played Carter Hill. We had him earlier in our Patreon review of Catch-22, and then in Altered States and Prince of the City. We'll see him next in Absence of Malice. He was Dr. Chandra in 2010, the creator of HAL 9000. His first feature film role was Midnight Cowboy. His uncle Barney Balaban was president of Paramount from 1936 to 1964, and this film was his second turn with Dreyfus after Close Encounters. Kenneth McMillan played Judge Weiler. We've seen him so far in Hide in Plain Sight, Little Miss Marker, Carney, Borderline, Eyewitness, and True Confessions. He's back later this year in Ragtime and Heartbeeps. And later, he shows up in Amadeus, Dune, Cat's Eye, and Armed and Dangerous, among many others. Khaki Hunter was Mary Jo Sadler. We've seen Khaki Hunter so far in Rhodey and Willie and Phil. But she's likely best known as Wendy from the Porky's films. She's in all three of those. Thomas Carter played Orderly John. We just had him as a high school student in Full Moon High. He transitioned shortly after this film to directing for a lot of high-profile television shows in the 80s, and then he moved into feature films in the 90s, directing Swing Kids, Save the Last Dance, and Coach Carter. Alba Ohms played Nurse Rodriguez. We saw her last season as Ralph's mother in Fame. Janet Eilber played Pat. This was her first feature. She shows up later in Hard to Hold. The Craft as Robin Tunney's mother, and in Mighty Joe Young, and she was obviously actually a professional dancer and was cast on the strength of her dancing. Catherine Grody played Mrs. Boyle. She was Miss Jump in My Bodyguard last season, and she's back as Crystal Eastman in Reds later this year. Later still, she's Mrs. Edison in Quick Change. George Weiner played Dr. Jacobs, sort of a 
bargain bin Stephen Tobolowski type character. Uh, he later shows up in My Favorite Year, Fletch, Spaceballs, and Not Another Teen Movie, among many others. Mel Stewart played Dr. Barr. He's Dr. Graves in Bride of Reanimator. Ward Costello played Mr. Eden. He's General Marshall in MacArthur and Mr. Clear Cole in Return from Witch Mountain. Alston Ahern played Day Nurse. Before this, she was in The Jerk, and we saw her last as Private Sawyer in Private Benjamin. Betty Cole played an ICU nurse. We saw her last as a grandmother in The Postman Always Rings Twice. Lyman Ward played Emergency Room Doctor. He was Mr. Grady in Nightmare on Elm Street 2, but he's probably best known as Mr. Bueller from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. We saw him last as a real estate agent in Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood. Julie Andelman played Stella, student nurse. We've seen her now in Where the Buffalo Roam and The Silent Scream. Jeffrey Combs was a first-year intern. We saw him last as the drive-in teller in Honky Tonk Freeway. He's back in Frightmare and The Man with Two Brains on the way to probably his most famous work as Herbert West in Reanimator. He comes back for Bride of Reanimator and Beyond Reanimator. He's also in Fortress and Frighteners, and he has a lot of voice acting work in various series. Stephen Bourne played Hoffman. He's a Batam regular with parts in Blue Thunder, War Games, and Short Circuit after this. Michael Steve Johns played Intern. Almost all his credits are for Richard Dreyfus movies, except Dungeon Master and Arachnophobia. Looks like he's probably Dreyfus's stunt double, who also gets small roles in all the films that he doubles for. Lisa Lang played First Nurse. She was Davenport in Night of the Comet. George T. Clinton of the Rebel Rockers is not to be confused with composer George S. Clinton or George E. Clinton with the Parliament Funkadelic. Glenn J. Cohen played a paramedic EMT. He was John on Stairs in Frankenhooker and more recently World's Worst Mugger on Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. Uh on a similar, uh, oh, that's not that person. I got really excited when I saw Roberta Williams, oh. the technician. I was like, Roberta Williams? I was like, oh, not that Roberta Williams. <laughs> on a similar note, I thought you said Gryffindor's Tribe, and I'm like, that's an interesting movie. Gryffindor's and then tribe. I looked up what Gryffindor's Tribe was. Have you ever seen Gryffindor's Tribe? I, it sounds vaguely familiar, but mm-hmm. the cover box is so, seems so inappropriate. It's very weird. <laughs> it, Jenna Elfman is in it, and he's like pretending that She's a member of some hidden tribe that he discovered because he's yeah. running out of money. Or yeah. yeah. Uh, Natasha Leone's in it, too, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. I remember laughing at it a few times. I rented it from our blockbuster for sure. I think that's everything for Whose Life Is It Anyway? If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, you can find all our socials at linktree slash vintagevideopod. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing On Golden Pond, which IMDb describes like so. Norman is a curmudgeon with an estranged relationship with his daughter Chelsea. At Golden Pond, he and his wife nevertheless agree to care for Billy, the son of Chelsea's new boyfriend, and a most unexpected relationship blooms. We leave you now with a trailer for On Golden Pond. Universal Pictures proudly presents a very special motion picture. Catherine Hepburn, Henry Fonda, Jane Fonda, On Golden Pond. Listen, this Norman Thayer Jr. over in Golden Pond. Oh, Norman, it's so beautiful. Everything's just waking up. Ethel Thayer. Sounds like I'm lifting, doesn't it? My, oh, my, you have on a tie. Yes, I know. I put it there. You look sexy. I hear you turned 80 today. Is that what you heard? Man, that's really old. You should meet my father. It means so much to him to have you here. Look at this little fat girl, Ethel. Sure, now he's got someone he can pick on. Bill Ray. 
Bill Ray. Yes, sir. The dentist? Yes, sir. Want to see my teeth? <laughs> we like to sleep together in the same room, same bed. You know, if it's not offensive to you. you said they wanted to sleep together. You and I did, didn't we? Oh, I guess I'd be delighted to have you abuse my daughter under my own roof. Would you like the room where I first violated her mother? What I'd like to know is why you enjoy playing games. You seem to like beating people. But darling, you're wrong about your dad. He does care. He cares deeply. I'm afraid of him. Well, he's afraid of you. So you should get along fine. No, he won't. And you know why? Because he doesn't care. He is a selfish son of a... I know I'm just being dumped here. Turkeys don't want me. Bull. This is a trout. What do you do up there in California? Cruise chicks. What do you do with them when you have them? Suck face. Good God! Hey, man, you don't have to yell at me. He wasn't yelling at you. He was yelling at life. What the heck does that mean? Oh, he's like an old lion. He has to remind himself that he can still roar. Scared me half to death. Billy! Billy! That's why I came running back here to you. See your pretty face. <clears throat> Listen to me, mister. You're my knight in shining armor. Don't you forget it. It seems that you and me have been mad at each other for so long. I didn't know we were mad at that. We just didn't like each other. <sighs> I, I want to be your friend. Want to dance? Or would you rather just suck face? <laughs> Catherine Hepburn, Henry Fonda, Jane Fonda. Lord Great presents a Mark Rydell film on Golden Pond from Universal Pictures.